no small joy to be able to stand before you this morning and to open God's Word once again. And so I would invite you to do that by turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And as you are turning there, I would ask you to stand if you are able once again for the reading of God's Holy Word. Galatians chapter 5, as we continue making our trek through Paul's letter to these churches, we're going to pick up this morning in verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And I'm going to read in your hearing through verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please find your seats. Beloved, the gospel really is a gospel of freedom. We ought not to uh, think that we can overstate this. Hear me well. In and through Christ's sinless life, substitutionary death, glorious resurrection and triumphant ascension, Christ really has redeemed us. He has redeemed us from the power of sin, from the penalty of death, and from the punishment of hell. We really have been freed. And this freedom in the gospel, it is perhaps nowhere more clearly demonstrated than in Paul's little letter here to the Galatians. You should know, during the Protestant Reformation, Galatians was referred to as the Magna Carta of spiritual emancipation. Galatians was said to be a small pebble with which the Reformers smote the papal giant of the Middle Ages. And that's because Galatians is an announcement of freedom. And therefore, it became the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which means we are free. Or as verse 13 announces, for you were called to freedom, brothers. But, and this is key, freedom in Christ does not mean freedom from Christ. Or, we might say, freedom from sin does not mean freedom to sin. Now, throughout the history of the church, and this goes all the way back, really, to the pages of Scripture, we've seen the church face two dangers. On the one hand, you have legalism, and then, on the other hand, you have license. Now, legalism, we are probably more than aware of. Legalism is that heinous error 
of the Pharisees. It's the idea that you and I think that we can do something or not do something to somehow make ourselves right in God's sight. And again, this plagued the Galatians. If you've been with us over the last couple of months and you've seen how the Judaizers have preyed upon these Christian churches in Galatia, calling them to adopt things like circumcision, uh, requiring them to keep Old Covenant feast days, and announcing that they must embrace certain dietary restrictions. And all of this in an effort to somehow justify themselves before God. We need to really feel the weight of this, beloved. They were tempted to think that in a very real way, Christ was not enough. And that somehow through their own vain efforts, that they would be able to tip the scales in their direction. That's legalism. License, though, is the opposite error. And it is equally egregious. Instead of thinking you can justify yourself by what you do or by what you don't do, license says, it doesn't matter what I do at all. It is, beloved, in a lot of ways, freedom taken to its immoral extreme. And so hear me well. Both legalism and license are twin dangers that must be guarded against at all costs lest the Son of Christ and His Gospel be eclipsed by the moon of depraved man. Both legalism and license, they are the sirens who sing their sweet song, luring the church to crash upon the rocks of despair. And just as the Galatians were faced with these sort of temptations, you'd better believe that we too are faced with these same temptations. In fact, we might even turn the screw a little bit and say that you and I face unique challenges on this very front. And I say that because the way that our society tends to view freedom. Many Americans think freedom is really just a license to partake in all manner of evil. For example, we chant freedom. And by that, we mean we want to be able to have intercourse with anything that has two legs. Or these days, maybe more than two legs. We think freedom means, well, we want to be free to murder babies in the womb. After all, they really are sort of an inconvenience. True freedom, we are passionately told, is the freedom to marry anyone you want or, and this is already upon us, as many people as you want. Apparently, in our day and age, freedom means you are free to compete in women's sports, even if you are short one X chromosome. The point not to be missed here, beloved, is that this is not freedom at all, though. This is not freedom, but, but really a deformed, a sort of retarded pseudo-freedom. One that actually brings chains with it. To think that those sorts of things is freedom would be the same as saying the Israelites were free to make bricks in Egypt. That's not, that's not freedom, that's slavery. 
And you will remember Jesus' own warning. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So freedom to sin is not anything less than bondage. So if being a slave to sin is pseudo-freedom, and it is, what does actual, what does true freedom look like? To quote Francis Schaeffer, how should we then live? Well, according to our passage, true freedom manifests itself in three ways. First, we are free from sin. If you are a Christian, you are free from sin. Christ has come. And he has taken to himself human flesh, meaning that he has become one of us. Why, you ask? Well, God has come down, taken on flesh, and become one of us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Christ has come. He has kept the law of God perfectly, obeying every single jot and tittle of it. And because Christ has done this for us, the shackles of sin have come off. As that him, come behold the wondrous mystery, teaches us to sing. He, the perfect Son of Man, in His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. So redeeming grace, Christ has merited righteousness for us. He then died a sinner's death on the cross, paying the penalty for the sin that you and I owe. And then three days later, God raised Christ up from the grave. And as the resurrected and ruling Savior of the world, the question is this, what does Christ offer to us? The answer is freedom. Freedom from sin. And freedom not just from sin's penalty, but also its power. That's why Paul reminds the church in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. And, and then comes the caution. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You are free, Christian, free from sin. And because you have been emancipated, don't return to your old master and cozy up to him. That would be like the Israelites returning to Egypt and snuggling up to their taskmasters. Now, quick clarification. When Paul speaks here of the flesh, and this is true throughout this entire section of Scripture, Paul doesn't mean here flesh like your physical body. He's not talking about your limbs. He's not talking about muscles or, or tissue or blood cells or any of that sort of stuff. In, in this context, your flesh is your old self. It's that part of you that rebels against God and desires to partake in all manner of sin. So Christians are those who are in Christ. And that means that the flesh is that old part of us. It is that in Adam part of us that we were born with. 
And so Paul's point is this. Don't use your freedom from sin as a means to sin. Don't think for a moment, Christian, that liberty in the gospel means license to sin. Just as a recently released convict shouldn't use his newfound freedom from chains as an opportunity to return to that shady behavior, well, neither should the redeemed Christian use his or her freedom in the gospel to cuddle up to sin. I should quickly add as well that the word there in the Greek translated by the ESV as opportunity, it is a word that was routinely used in the context of the military world. In its literal usage, this is a wartime word, one that referred specifically to, catch this, a base of operations. The, the metaphorical idea here seems to be something like this. We must not allow sin to use our freedom in Christ as a beachhead to launch a spiritual attack against us. Don't go there. Don't dabble in that sort of thing. Don't even entertain that idea for a moment. Christian, you have been freed. From sin. That's the first way that true freedom manifests itself. The second is this. We are free to serve. Free to serve. So instead of using your freedom in the gospel to sin, use your freedom, end of verse 13, through love to serve one another. For, verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Brothers and sisters, just as the ancient Israelites were released from Pharaoh's tyranny so that they would serve God, so you and I are released from the chains of sin so that we would serve one another. And notice, we serve one another by loving one another. That's what the end of verse 13 says, right? Through love, serve one another. To which you might respond, well, how do we love one another? And I will grant that is an important question in our day and age for the same reason that clarifying freedom is an important thing in our day and age. And that's because the world has gone bat guano crazy when it comes to so-called love. Let's be very clear this morning. Love, biblically speaking, does not just mean utter passivity. Neither does it mean that if we're to love people that we only ever accept and affirm and celebrate everything about them. And I'm likewise sorry to burst your bubble, but love is not merely the flutter of a heart. Love is actually, at least biblically speaking, something much more concrete. It is both sacrificial and self-effacing. It's more than an emotion. Love is a choice we make. It's, it's an action. It's a verb. And it's one that encompasses much more than the heart or merely our emotions. But love is something that comes to involve both our head and our hands. Think of Christ for a moment. Think of the love that He demonstrated for us. 
What did Christ do but choose to serve us? Choose to lay down His life for us? If that wasn't enough, it's also worth pointing out that Christ also in love spoke the truth even when it stung. Eunice, a cursory reading of the Gospels will reveal that Christ is patient, merciful, humble. Christ is forgiving and He cares for justice and for righteousness. Beloved, this is the picture of love, and that is because Christ is love. Christ is the incarnation, not just of God, but also the incarnation of love itself. And this is what you and I have been freed to do in the gospel. We have been freed to love one another and by loving one another to actually serve one another. To lay down our lives for the person next to us. Just as Christ laid down His life for you. Christ says as much at the end of John 13. We read, just as I have loved you, Christ says, you also are to love one another. And then he adds, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So catch this, one of the telltale signs of the church, what makes it stand out and sort of makes it distinct from the world is what? Well, a love for one another. And again, don't read a silly, shallow, sentimental, self-serving love. The world's already got that in spades. That's not what we're talking about. What Christ is talking about is a sacrificial love whereby we serve one another. And the point that Jesus is making is that the world should be able to look at the church and see that kind of love displayed here among us. This is why, beloved, things like schisms and infighting and church splits and people stomping off and leaving local churches is not just devastating, but also downright sinful. When things like that happen, when the seeds of sin are planted and there is finally a harvest, you better know that that crop is rotten to the core and it tastes bitter. To be more specific, a lack of patience, a refusal to forgive, an allergy to bear with one another and, and to seek to submit to one another and to live out the Christian life in the context of a local church. Granted, one that is not perfect, of course, but is faithful. In those contexts, to, to pull back, to be selfish, to stiff arm, to avoid being stretched and, and, and having to forgive and, and to esteem others better than yourselves, to do so only reveals a bitter heart. This is why Paul warns the Galatian churches. Think about this. Right in the middle of a section on freedom in the gospel and love for one another, Paul warns the churches. Think about that. 
He warns them against fighting. You can see it in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's actually a very vivid picture. I say that because the language that Paul uses there, specifically the language of bite and devour, that is language that comes like straight from the animal kingdom. It's as if Paul is watching Animal Planet on TV and it reminds him of the local church. Like there's snakes that are hissing and crocodiles are lurking and, and I don't know, like honey badgers are pouncing. And Paul is watching all of this. He's saying, this isn't freedom. This isn't love. This isn't evidence of the gospel being worked out. This is a stinking zoo. And sure, all of the animals appear to be free. After all, they're all running around and climbing and doing whatever animals do. But they're doing so in cages. That's what sin does. Sin gives the appearance of freedom. Like a mirage in the middle of a desert. But in reality, all sin does, all it does every time is enslave souls and wreck families and split churches and eventually drag people straight to the pit of hell. That's what sin does every single time. Now, I mentioned freedom manifests itself in three ways. We are free from sin. We are free to serve. And third, we are free to satisfy. That is to say, we are free to satisfy or to keep or to fulfill the law. Is that what Paul says in verse 14? We read, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And, and then I want you to know that, that Paul proceeds to quote a passage from the holiness code of Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I want you to know how remarkable this is. How much of a deep irony there is at play here. Think about this. Since Paul has put pen to paper, he has been laboring to teach the churches here in Galatia one thing. They are under no obligation to the law. Right? Contrary to popular opinion, Moses is not Lord of their life. And he never should be. To yield to circumcision, Paul has been saying, an old covenant requirement, mind you, would be to damn their souls. And to return to the Mosaic law, it would not bring the blessings they hoped for, but only curses. And again, if you've been with us over the course of the last couple of months, you know that Paul has said this about a hundred times, about a hundred different ways. But then here, almost out of nowhere, he tells this same church who was under no obligation to the law that they fulfill the law through their love to one another. Think about that. How can you be free to satisfy the law on one hand and also free from the law at the same time? How does that work? Well, the answer lies in thinking through the various uses or functions of the law. 
Historically, Reformed theology has affirmed three different uses of the law. And for the sake of clarity, I'm going to refer to them this morning as the condemning use, the civil use, and the Christian use. First, the law condemns us. Again, we've seen this throughout Galatians, right? Galatians 3.10 warns us, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So don't miss this. The law condemns. And the law condemns us because we don't keep it. Right? Let's be very clear. Rather than make us righteous, all the law does is reveal our unrighteousness. We might think of the law as an x-ray machine. It simply exposes what is inside of us. Sure, depending upon the day, we might be tempted to think that we're pretty good people. We're like decent human beings. But, like smelling salts, God's law quickly revives us from our stupor and exposes us for what we really are, and that is sinners. That's the first use of the law. Condemns us. The second is the law's civil use. That is to say, God designed the law to restrain evil doers. You see this throughout Scripture, but perhaps sort of most, the most well-known instance is in Romans chapter 13. In speaking of the civil magistrate, Paul calls them God's servant, literally God's deacon. And as God's servant, the civil magistrate is one who, Romans 13, 4 now, carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, so think of it this way. The civil use of the law of God is how God keeps people in line. It's how God helps curb sin and crime. It, the, the civil use of God's law should enable you and I to walk out to our cars, drive home, and walk in our front door without getting mugged and raped and beaten. That's the civil use of God's law. The third use, though, and this is the use that Paul has in mind in our passage here, is the Christian use. Because we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Christ's righteousness is now ours, and we are welcomed into God's family. And because all this is true about us, we now have a new relationship to the law. No longer, church, does the law thunder over us and threaten us with death. How could it? Remember, Christ has already been cursed for us. He has already died the death we deserve for our law-breaking. And so now that we are in Christ and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the law no longer condemns us. It corrects us. It guides us. It shows us what it looks like to grow in grace and to be conformed to greater Christ-likeness. Please hear this. This is so important. We are never, ever saved by our keeping of the law. 
The only way we will ever be saved is by Christ, the only one who actually has kept the law. But now, because we have been made new in Christ, we actually desire to obey God and His law. Remember 1 John 5, 4. The commandments of God to the Christian are not burdensome. So as Christians, we are not, verse 18, under the law. Its barking has been silenced. Its threats defanged. Its curses meted out. The judge's gavel has already dropped. In fact, it did so some 2,000 years ago when Christ stood in our place and died for us. Because we've been brought to Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we've torn up our resumes, we've received Christ, and we know that He and He alone is all of our righteousness. And yet, to come full circle, our freedom in Christ does not mean that we are free from Christ. Our freedom from sin does not mean now that we are free to sin. So what are we free to do? Well, we are free to love Christ. We are free to love one another. We are free to fulfill the law of God. And catch this, because the law of God can be summarized by loving God and loving one another, we fulfill or we satisfy the law by loving Christ and loving each other. Zoom out with me for a quick moment. I, I, I recognize that this is something that, that sort of stumps Christians a lot of time. What is the Christian's relationship to the law of God? Well, Spurgeon got at it in a way that probably only Spurgeon can. And he does so by drawing a contrast to the Christian being under the law and above the law. So Spurgeon asks, what is God's law now to the Christian? And Spurgeon answers, it is not above a Christian, it is under a Christian. Listen how Spurgeon opens this whole thing up. Some men, he says, hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians and say, if you sin, you will be punished with it. But Spurgeon objects, it is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. Spurgeon presses on, Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. And then Spurgeon concludes, The law is good and excellent if it keep in its place. So how do we keep the law in its place? Well, for starters, you never, ever look to the law for your justification. You never, ever look to the law thinking, well, if I can just do this or not do that, then God will be pleased with me. You look at the law that way. All the law will do is put you in chains. But we've been set free through Christ. But again, that doesn't mean the law is now fit for the dumpster. Now that we are in Christ, the law guides us in what it means for us to live as Christians. And the law calls us to love. To love God and to love one another. 
So that's what we do as Christians. We fulfill the law by walking in liberty and love, not by walking in liberty and license. But, and this is, this is really huge, the law doesn't do this for us. This is not a work that the law performs. Well, what does this work? Well, better asked, who does this work? And the scandalous answer is the very Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ in our midst, the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. The law is the railroad tracks guiding us. We are the train being carried down the tracks. And the Spirit of God is the locomotive fueling and, and pulling us along. That's why Paul can, right after reminding us of our freedom in the gospel and the great responsibility and privilege we have to love one another, right after that, he exhorts us, verse 16, to walk by the Spirit. So the Christian life, church, is a life of freedom in Christ, a life of love for one another, and a life of walking by the Spirit. Now at this juncture, the question immediately arises, well, what does, especially given the sort of charismatic overtaking of evangelicalism that has transpired in the last couple of decades, what does life in the Spirit look like? If we are to, verse 16, walk by the Spirit, what should we expect that to look like? Paul gives us three words. First, we should expect war. Beloved, life in the Spirit is a life of war. And verse 17 describes this conflict quite well. It no doubt resonates with you. Verse 17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed or at odds with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now remember, again, the flesh here is that part of you that does not want what God wants. It is your corrupted nature and all its weakness and depravity. But then there is the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God takes up residence, not just in the life of the church, but in the life of the individual Christian. And when that happens, there is conflict. It is a battle, if you like, between the old man and the new man. The old self and your new redeemed self. As Paul says, between the flesh and the spirit. And there is no point in sugarcoating it here. This battle is real. There is a war raging in us as we as pilgrims seek to move from the city of destruction all the way to the celestial city. And I don't know about you, but it often feels like with every step I take forward, you often feel like you're taking two steps backward. Why? Because you've got to have settled in your mind the life of a Christian is a genuine life of conflict. Here's the problem, though. Most of us don't like conflict. We tend to shy away from it. When uh, pressed, we tend to be those who are more flight than fight. Plus, we assume that fight sort of has negative connotations to it. Here's the good news in all of this. This conflict, this war, this 
fight, it is actually evidence of something glorious. Do you know what that glorious thing is? It is actually evidence of new life. You see, your battle against your flesh, again, that war and that conflict, it is evidence of your conversion. This is one of those things where it's not uncommon for Christians to get all mixed up. This, this is what tends to happen with Christians. You don't have to be young or old. It's just sort of a, a general Christian problem. You, you look at your life, and what do you see? Well, if you just barely peel back one layer, you quickly see sin. And it turns out you are not perfect. Big shocker. And so, as a Christian, you look in the mirror and you see that you're conflicted. You see struggles, you see wrestlings, you see sin. If you are honest with yourself, you know that your heart is not completely sold out for Christ like it is supposed to be. Your life is often, if you are honest, one of turmoil and conflict. One that appears at least for a season as if sin has the upper hand. Deep in your soul, you know that you desire to obey Christ. Sort of. Sometimes. But you also know deeper in your soul that you often fail miserably more than you care to admit, especially to those around you this morning. Any of that sound familiar? And so what do we do? Well, we look at all of this and we see it as evidence that I'm a wretch and I'm not actually a Christian at all. You know what Paul says? That is all evidence that you are actually born again, that you are a true Christian. Do you want to know why? Non-Christians don't give a rip about this stuff. The unregenerate are not in a battle with their sin. They waved the white flag a long time ago. Non-Christians don't care about Christ and pleasing Him and obeying Him. They hate Him. For the non-Christian, there is no battle raging with their flesh, and that's because they don't have the Spirit of God to rage against their flesh. So if you are a frail and fledging Christian, take heart. Because your conflict is actually evidence of your conversion. This is the normal Christian life. It's war. And I am sorry to break it to you if this is the first time that you're hearing this. But the very moment that you were converted to Christ, you were conscribed into the military of the Lord's army and you were put on the front lines. That's your life now. That's your life. It is a life of war. And let's be honest, it's also exhausting. That's actually the second word. Life in the Spirit is exhausting. Let me do explain. When, when Paul says in verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit. Or when he says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit. What he is emphasizing here is the overall trajectory of the Christian's life. The point is, this is not simply a season. This is your life. Let me say it another way. The entire Christian life, from beginning to end, is one that is to be marked by walking in and with and through and by the very Spirit of God. Which means, and here's the punchline, 
the war that we are engaged in, the conflict that you and I have with our flesh, it will not be over by the end of the weekend. It will continue on and on and on and on. Some of you have been Christians for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. Is the battle over? It's just beginning, isn't it? And this battle will rage on until either Christ calls you home or until Christ returns. Until then, we put one foot in front of the other. And it's okay to say, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Now, at the risk of being too discouraging, there is good news in all of this. The good news is found in the third word that describes life in the Spirit. Yes, it is war, that is true. And yes, the Christian life is one that is exhausting. Can I get an amen? Third word now, life in the Spirit is a life of victory. Now, lest I be accused of being some TBN heretic, let me clarify what I mean by victory. Ultimately, our life is a life of victory because Christ has already won the war for us. And it was won on the cross when sin was defeated, death was killed, and Satan was vanquished. Think with me for a moment of World War II. Many of you will know E.E. Day was not until uh, May 8, 1945. In a very real sense, the war in Europe was over on June 6th, the year before 1944, what we call D-Day. On D-Day, as those thousand ships, the largest armada to ever set sail, mind you, as those ships carried nearly a quarter of a million soldiers across the English Channel to France where they stormed the course of Normandy, it was then when the beginning of the end of the war occurred. Every objective observer knew on that day the war was over. Germany had been defeated, even though there was still fighting taking place. There were still bullets, and blazing, uh, bullets blazing the next day. There were still soldiers fighting for months on end. There was still blood and guts and tears. That is all true. But for all intents and purposes, the war had ended. After D-Day, it was just a matter of wrapping everything up. Well, similarly, D-Day happened for us Christians some 2,000 years ago. It happened on the cross as the blood of incarnate God was shed. It happened three days later when Christ emerged from the tomb. And it was then when sin and death and hell and Satan were all defeated. And while that war is over, you better believe battles still rage on. D-Day has happened for us Christians, but we still wait for VE Day. We wait for the day when Christ returns. We wait for the day when we can finally <clears throat> go home, as it were. But know this the war has already been won. Now, let's connect the dots very quickly. You realize what all of this means? It means that in your battle with sin, and by that I mean the flesh, the world, and the devil. 
that battle has already been won. Do, do you still struggle now? Of course you do. Of course you do. But know this, there is a day coming when you will finally be able to lay down your arms, embrace your Savior, and be welcomed into the new heaven and the new earth that He is creating for you. Christ has promised resurrection for us. And on that day, sin will be no more. Not, not just will its penalty be done, not just will its power be done, but its very presence will be extinguished from our lives. It's the chorus on that old hymn, the church will be saved to sin no more. In the meantime, know this. Christ has done it all for you. Christian, you are free. You are free to love. You are free to serve. You are free in Christ. Only don't use your liberty as a license for sin. Our Father, we pray for the aid of your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would delight in Christ, that we would trust him and that we would treasure him. We pray that you would grow us in grace. And by that, we mean that you would, by the power of your spirit, grow us into greater conformity into the image of Christ. We pray that you would help us to see our freedom for as glorious as it is. And we pray that you would help us to taste how bitter sin is and that we would grow in our distaste of it and our hatred for it. We pray that you would help us to spend our days here waiting for Christ's return, loving one another and serving one another. We pray that you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.